Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Here at the Fantasy Doctors, we use our expertise in the world of sports as well as medicine to bring you the most up-to-date injury news. Our first injury of the day actually broke his back last week. I want Lionel Messi healthy. I want Suarez healthy. Fam, fam. Mo Salah is beasting. I want Ronaldo healthy. I want the whole squad healthy. Seven La Liga title in a span of 10 years. That basically, to me, that means he was concussed. He was knocked out. There was absolutely no competition. We're your hosts, physical therapy students, Andy and Berg. And welcome to the Fantasy Doctors Soccer Podcast. Soccer fans, welcome to a special edition of the Fantasy Doctors Soccer Podcast. We have a special guest here. His name is Dr. David Geyer. Uh, I'm Andy, co-host, co-host here, Berg, with me as well. Dr. Up, David guys? Geyer, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Like, what club do you support? Where do you live? Things like that. And please I mean, don't, say, don't say Barcelona. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, but let's be fair. That's far more important than anything about me. Uh, I mean, I, I have been a Liverpool fan since yes! going on 20 years now. Um, yes. Back, and, and there's kind of a, an interesting story of how that uh, happened, but uh, well, not really interesting. But no, you know, uh, I've been a soccer fan since I was, you know, like most people, I played soccer growing up, uh, up and up through travel ball, and then for a variety of reasons, I quit. I had a bad travel experience with one of the coaches and uh, mm. our team wasn't any good. And he really didn't handle that real well with any of the players. So almost everybody quit. And then we moved at the same time and then, you know, just things happen and it doesn't end up. Um, I just decided not to go on. I had other interests, but having said that I have always been a soccer fan. I've followed soccer for as long as I can remember. And then transitioning as I get into my orthopedic surgery career and and doing a sports medicine fellowship, soccer just became something that I loved, you know, from the injury side and, you know, get, you know, it's a big sport here in Charleston, South Carolina. So I get a ton of kids from six to, you know, 21 and even adults that play rec league soccer, they get hurt. So I I think it's, it's been a natural transition throughout my life. So you're, you're a Liverpool fan, huh? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Uh-oh. he doesn't want to jump on that train yet, but he, I'll make I'll make sure you convert right away because that's a great team to support. Yeah, it, it's one of those things. When I was, uh, this was probably in the mid '90s. I, I liked the Premier League, but I didn't have a team. And then, uh, and I always like, all right, I'm going to find one to follow. And this is going to sound horrible, but I knew I didn't want to be a Manchester United fan because no. I've never been a fan of any teams that just buy championships and I know Liverpool way back in the day probably did their version of that in the 70s but you know it's like why I'm why I'm not a Yankees fan I'm not you know any of that type of thing and so I knew it wasn't going to be that and so I was for a couple years kind of struggling all right which team am I going to support and then and I forget what year this is off the top of my head but the year that Michael Owen debuted at 16 years old for England against Argentina and had you know an amazing debut so I was like well he plays for Liverpool I'll follow Liverpool 
took me like two two games, two matches, which back then it was hard to see him on TV. But instantly, yeah. I mean, Owen was fine, but instantly became a, a Gerard fan, a Stevie G fan, and the rest is history. Thank, thankfully, you can watch the games uh, on you know on TV now. Before it was just following it on the internet, basically. So finally it has come to where i mean now i don't miss games i if i'm not going to be home i record them but uh oh yeah. wow so he's he's a very dedicated he records it oh yeah he's a very dedicated fan <laughs> yeah, and I, this i'm cautiously optimistic this year this could be a fun year oh yeah this i think i think it's ours i think it's ours too i'm, I'm a little nervous uh for a couple reasons we can talk about but I, like i said i'm cautiously optimistic i, I think that the ox injury, uh, and we could talk about that at some point if you want. Yes, that that was a huge blow. That was and then I think blow. that um, I think our depth at certain positions still makes me a little nervous compared to City's depth. I mean, they haven't even been playing half their starters, and yet they've got ten points. Um, we it'll be interesting to see. So I still I still don't don't really know what what happened with the Oxley Chamberlain injury. It just happens out of nowhere. I mean, now, the lad's been battling injury for, for, you know, I think for like the past five years he's been playing for Arsenal. So it didn't surprise me that he got injured, but it's just the timing was horrible because he, 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 he got his confidence back. He started playing again. You know, he found his group and then bam, injury. Yeah. It's really devastating. When when it happened, I I thought, oh, well, he just tore his ACL, which, believe me, as you guys know, that's not good at all. Uh, you know, six to nine month, you know, absence. So we were thinking, you know, November at the earliest, yeah. you know, maybe early early winter. And then the news came out. I can't remember when this was. Maybe May, June. I don't remember exactly when it was released that they actually knew that it was worse than that. It was an ACL, PCL, MCL. And that was That's what he wants? Wow. Yeah. This is the, not to change sports, but I will for a second because it's one everybody remembers. This is the Marcus Lattimore injury. Um, this is one that has really poor chances of return to sports. Oh it's, it's essentially, if you look, there's only been one that I know of, one big study, and it's not a real big study, of pro athletes with multi-ligament knee injuries. And basically a third of them got back to play at the same level. A third got back to play but they weren't ever the same. And then a third never played again. You look at Marcus Lattimore, he never played again. But Willis McGahee did. So, I mean, it is possible. But that makes me wonder what his future for Liverpool is. I think he'll get back to play, but I think we saw the best of him toward the end of last season. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's so sad. I didn't, I didn't think it was that bad. I, 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 you know, we, we never got more insight on the injury, but I didn't – I just didn't just, – just thinking about – you know, all your ligament, <laughs> yeah. all your knee ligament being torn. Especially the way that it happened. I mean, when you see that type of injury, it's almost always a direct blow like Lattimore's was or Willis McGahee's was. It's not you just slide and, I mean, he hyperflexed no. his knee, but you, you wouldn't think that that would tear everything like that. So, yeah, it was – and I and I'm almost certain that that's the extent of his injury because I did an interview with a, a Liverpool fan site and they have a reporter that's sort of in with the team. And he said, that's what they told him. So not good news. That is not Let's hope for the best. I mean, the guy seems like a great guy. So I really, I really hope he pulls through it. Yeah, wow. definitely. We're, we're definitely all pulling for him on that one. Um, but let, let's kind of get back to you for a little bit. So you're an orthopedic surgeon and a lot of our listeners were wondering how, how exactly did you get to this point? Like, what did you have to study? What did you have to do to get to yeah. where you're at right now? 
I, when I was in college, I didn't even, at least at first, plan on going to medical school. My dad was uh, a physician. He was a pediatrician early in his career, and then he switched to radiology. But it just, I was like, oh, I'm not going to do medicine. I, my plan was to go and somehow, you know, take whatever I was going to take and then go to business school. And really early on, really liked economics, ended up becoming an economics, uh, economics major. But over the first year or so, I kept remembering my dad would tell me that there's a field in medicine for every personality. Like, you know, some people just aren't cut out, cut out for business or some people aren't cut out for sales or whatever it is. But in medicine, you can, if you have no personality, you can be a pathologist or if you're, you like kids, you know, there's something for everybody if you're real outgoing. So I was like, all right, maybe I'll give medicine a shot. I'll find something I like. So I got to medical school and I fairly quickly knew I wanted to be a surgeon of some sort. I wanted to fix problems and not just sort of manage symptoms. You know, mm -hmm. the thing, and, and don't get me wrong, I love internal medicine and family medicine and pediatrics, but largely what they're doing is giving you a medicine to sort of decrease the symptoms, but the underlying problem is still there. And that just wasn't what I wanted to do. I actually wanted to fix them so that they went away. So I knew I wanted to be a surgeon. So I rotated through all the surgical fields, got it down to orthopedic surgery and neurosurgery. And quite honestly, I just liked the life. I liked the patient population better in orthopedic surgery. And so that's what I did. Go to residency. Then you're in the same boat. You're trying to figure out, you know, do you want to be a joint replacement surgeon or spine surgeon or hand or foot and ankle or trauma or things like that. And, and I got to with, with sports medicine that I just wanted people – that just had their one thing wrong, that they didn't have 8 million medical problems and you okay. weren't, you know, I just wanted to healthy people that were excited to get back to sports or exercise. And so that's what made it great. It's yeah, the surgeries are fun, but being able to tell somebody that they are, you know, cleared to exercise, cleared to run, cleared to whatever it is the, and seeing the excitement on their face, that's the best part of what I do. So that's why I did it. And it's so far so good. That's nice. Dr. David, I got to say, um, you're not exactly um, how I picture an orthopedic surgeon. You know, I'm, I'm picturing gray hair, <laughs> you know, glasses. That is not what I'm seeing here at no. all, guys. Dr. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, I, you know, I do think that that is important in the world of sports medicine, in any of the sports medicine fields, is you have to be personable. You have to be able to talk in language that people understand. And I think that's one of the, the things that sports medicine uh, in orthopedic surgery has not done terribly well, is you have people that just can't talk you know, to in normal English. And so, yeah, I can't speak for the gray hair and all that. Cause I'm sure that's coming, but the, yeah, you gotta be personable. You gotta be outgoing. You've got to be able to talk in ways that people understand. Hey, I hear you on that. That's one of the thing that, you know, we, we battle too in, in physical therapy, you know, there, yeah. just that, that patient interaction, you just speaking with them and explaining pathology in a manner that they can understand, especially now these days with pain science, when you have to explain pain science to patient, that's a, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard topic to actually digest with you know, patient. Yeah, no patient. I have no doubt. Yeah, definitely. So as an orthopedic surgeon, what, is, what do you think is the hardest part about your job, especially working with both adults and youth? 
I think there's sort of two things that are sort of interrelated. One is just getting somebody back, and this is at any level and any age, getting somebody back to just be able to do something isn't good enough anymore. Mm -hmm. You really have to get people being able to do what they want to do as well as they want to do it and to be able to do it for you know decades longer than we did a few years ago. I mean, people don't stop running or playing sports even at 50 years old they want to do it until they're 70 and 80 and they really don't want joint replacements, which then take a lot of that out. And so I think that there is, you know, a lot of work with you guys, with the physical therapist, there's a lot of work on the, the mental side of getting somebody ready um, so that they, they can get back to what they want to do. And then uh, this pertains as much to the kids. Then there's the, you know, we need to figure out ways to prevent injuries. Treating injuries is great. Don't get me wrong. I love surgery, uh, make money doing surgery. But if we can keep people from needing that surgery, that's infinitely better for the patient than rehabbing them, treating them after the injury happens. And so I think that that's one of the big areas that sports medicine has to go is we've got to do what we can to prevent injuries in the first place. Mm -hmm. Hey, I, I hear you on that one. And we, that would reduce healthcare costs as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that the, the upside is good for uh, obviously the patients if you can avoid injury, but it's good for the teams. It's good for the healthcare uh, costs. Uh, you know, every, every way. I think that that's a good thing. But I tell you, as you guys, I'm sure have seen in the physical therapy world, getting people to do something on a daily basis, if it's like an ACL exercise program, that's easier said than done. It's oh, yeah. one of those things. That you theory yeah. makes a lot of sense. And in theory, people are like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. But I think the compliance rates with those, unless the, they're highly supervised by the athletic trainers on the you know, with them every day, yeah, I think the compliance rates can be pretty poor. Yeah, I was actually um, studying this warm-up program for soccer players called FIFA 11 Plus. I don't know if you heard of it or not. Yeah. But um, the, the way they kind of framed it, there was a big study on it or whatever. And they the study that I was reading actually addressed it from like a public health perspective, because mm -hmm. if you think about the amount of kids that play soccer throughout the world and how many injuries they all get, it's almost like like an epidemic. You can make a very substantial impact on youth mm -hmm. like athletes throughout the world if you manage to get them to do a warm up program. But teaching it to them and having them implement it is a completely different thing than simply saying it's effective. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I wrote a chapter about this, the ACL injury prevention programs for a book I wrote that came out last year. And I interviewed a bunch of people, Holly Silvers and uh, Bert Mandelbaum, who created the PEP program for the U.S. Women's National Team. And that's now become the FIFA 11 plus and things like that. And th there's a couple of challenges. One, getting coaches to do it. I mean, they just don't want to cut into their practice time. Yeah, so you've got to make that time. program really short uh, time wise uh, to get them to do it. And then two, you've got to really get it at a, at a younger age than I think that we currently target. If you're really going to make a, a big difference with changing movement patterns, you really have to target the eight, nine, 10 year olds, especially the females. And it's hard to reach those groups because a lot of them are still playing rec sports. So I think from a public health standpoint, if we're going to pursue this in a, in a broader sense, and I completely agree with you that we could reduce healthcare costs and benefit a huge part of society, but somehow I think we're going to have to get it into the schools. And I think I don't have an easy answer as to how you do that. Uh, you know, it's funny you said that. I think there's also a, a need to educate the parents as well. Yeah. 
because um you know they keep signing up their kids for for camps i don't have any number to prove this but every year i go by my uh my high school and it's just there seem to be more kids every year signing up for camps there's camps camps left and right left and right but you know there is there's no talk about injury prevention in any of those camps at all it's just all performance wise so if there's something that you know yeah I think the the way it's going to be successful, and I th- I, I think Hollywood probably agree. I know people uh, that that are big in the ACL injury prevention world. I think it's it's somehow tying these programs into a performance program. So you create okay. a warm up set of exercises that you do every day that aren't just an injury prevention exercise program, but they're a performance program. If you do this, you're going to be able to. Yeah, I don't, I'm just making this up now, but you know, Hey, you're going to be able to jump an inch higher. You're going to be able to, you know, have a little bit more explosive speed You're and Oh, by the way, may drop your injury rate. I think that's what's ultimately yeah. going to convince parents and coaches to do it. It's also hard to talk to people about injury because no one cares about injury until they injured. <laughs> you know, everyone wants to get faster and <laughs> they want to be stronger. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll be the first to tell you, I don't know how we reverse that, quite honestly. Uh, I think, <laughs> I think and it gets to a whole other discussion. I mean, youth sports is spiral, spiraling out of control in yes. terms of, of the industry and what's happening in it. I don't know how – I think you're absolutely right. I, I don't think people think of, about injury, and if they do, they think, oh, that can't happen to me or can't happen to my kid uh, until it does. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So let, let's get a little bit into pro injuries right here. So we had a pretty bad head collision with Luke Shaw um, yesterday. So we, we all saw the video clip of it, and it was, it was pretty graphic in my opinion. What were your initial thoughts when you first saw that collision? I, I think probably like every soccer fan, I uh, really worried about the, what happened to his head. And, and I haven't gotten much of an update other than uh, something I read online said it's not as bad as they thought. But that's one of the concerns I think that we're starting to hear more and more about heading the ball. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't an issue with repetitive heading, you know, in terms of brain risk. But that's what happens when people go up to head the ball a lot of times is they get an elbow to the head or they mm-hmm. collide heads in the air. And in the video is hard to tell. It looks like Shaw's head hits the elbow of his opponent, and then he hits his head on the ground as he falls. Uh, Somewhere along the line, there is serious risk for, for injury that way. And when you hit the ground, you can even hurt your neck. So I think that it's, it's obviously worrisome. I, I don't know what you really do to prevent that, quite honestly. Yeah, definitely, definitely tough to watch. So, I mean, he, he was actually assessed on the field, and I was watching the replay of the match, and they actually assessed him on the field for a solid – six or seven minutes which in my opinion was the right call given the fact that it wasn't too serious of a game and in that situation just want to make sure the player's okay but what do you think is happening right now medically with him like who's treating him what's what's being assessed on him right now do you think I would imagine and I don't have any confirmation of this but I imagine he was taken to a what wherever they were to a hospital where he was evaluated by either a neurosurgeon or a neurologist probably got a CT scan because when you're down that much, they're usually going to get a CT scan to look for concussion because that's not something you necessarily see on a CT scan, but you're going to look for some kind of bleed around the brain, you know, an epidural or subdural hematoma. 
and I haven't heard, I would assume that he doesn't have that if they said it's not as bad as thought. And then now you're just managing it as a concussion. That becomes tricky though, as, as we've heard with the NFL issues, you know, trying to know when somebody's really back to baseline, hopefully Manchester United and all the premier league teams do baseline concussion testing. I would assume they do, but I, I haven't really heard that they do so that then they can compare Shaw's, you know, basically post-injury test to what he was pre-injury and not let him return until he is back to baseline. But boy, we have seen with FIFA, uh, granted this is um, Premier League's a little different, but FIFA generally has issues with guys playing and not getting treated the way they should. I mean, it happened several times in this World Cup. It was horrible the previous World Cup. uh, And so uh, hopefully that doesn't happen with Shaw. I didn't know so. I didn't know they do a, you know, I well, based on that injury. I didn't know they do a CT scan, but I guess it makes sense now to rule out any sort of epidural hematoma. Okay. I, I, mean, I, I, I don't know for sure that they would, but the fact that they had to to pull him off the field stretcher wise, I, I would I'd be willing to bet that they they did it as a precaution. Okay. Well, if if Man United didn't have any <laughs> any more problems, then now they do. Yeah, yeah and, and to a guy that has had a rough year with uh, Mourinho already, mm-hmm. uh, and what his substitute Bai, uh, that's that's going to be rough too. That's uh, going to be rough. That may not be fun over there uh, for the next next few weeks. Yeah, so going into Luke Shaw a little bit more, he had that leg break, and then now he's having this concussion issue. I, a question that kind of just popped into my mind is. Is there is a player that is injury prone like actually a real thing? Is it is it real to just be unlucky and susceptible to injury? Or in some cases, like in Luke Shaw's, it's just bad luck. But on the other side of it, like, is there a reason why he's always injured? Is there something we can do about that? You know, there's different philosophies on this, and I'll I'll give you mine. And you know, maybe it applies to him, maybe it doesn't. I think some players it's bad luck I mean if you look at like Rob Gronkowski where he breaks his forearm and then has you know all of his injuries it seem like are are traumatic and they're sort of freak things like what are you going to do ACL tear things like that but then you have other guys and we see this in soccer all the time I mean Jordan Henderson is one Adam Lallana is one Daniel Sturridge is the best example of this that that have these recurrent soft tissue injuries muscle strains like hamstrings and calves and quads that, you know, they just keep happening over and over again. And concussions, albeit a completely different injury, is a little bit of that same slippery slope. And so I think once you have one of those, to make sure you don't end up in that injury-prone category where you're getting these quad injuries or hamstring injuries, you've got to make sure they're completely healed. We have a good example, hamstring injuries. We know that if if a pro athlete's had one hamstring injury, they're six times more likely to have a second one than somebody that's never had one. And so you've got to really shut them down, you know, as long as you need to rehab them like crazy. And then, you know, hopefully, you know, it doesn't recur early or you're going to end up in this, this sort of recurrent injury scenario. So with Shaw, it's hard to know the concussion can just happen to anybody, but his other stuff, you may be, that may be the case. Okay. Yeah, definitely. It's funny because I, I always thought, you know, I'm looking at guys like Sturridge and events and company who always get soft tissue injury. And, you know, I keep wondering, okay, do this guy, you know, do these guys, you know, actually, actually do the training that they're supposed to do? Because how come those injuries just keep coming back? 
every time. Like sometimes those guys come back from injury and then within two weeks they go back. Yeah. So I guess. Usually that's a sign, and I, I don't know about companies specifically, but usually that's a sign that they probably weren't completely. The hard part is knowing, and this is where you guys come in, um, is, is knowing when they're fully ready to go. Because, yeah, you're going to feel good if you're not playing soccer and all you're doing is riding a bike and, and getting yeah. ultrasound and massage and stuff. But until you're on the field full speed, you don't really know that it's healed. And so it's tricky. You can get the MRIs that look at the hamstring and, and show you that there's no fluid in it anymore. But that's not the same as being ready to go. And so I think that's where, you know, the sports physical therapist, you know, the functional testing, you put them through the sports specific drills and see okay. if they're ready. But even then it's a little bit of a gamble. Okay. A lot of good information there. Um, we're coming up on our time limit for this podcast here, but we're going to bring Dr. David Geyer back for a part two. But in the meantime, um, Dr. David, you want to tell us where our listeners can find you? I know you got a nice podcast, a nice website. Tell us where we can find you. Yeah, I think probably the best place to, to find me, and then you can kind of go with all the other stuff I do, podcast, YouTube channel, you know, Twitter, Facebook, you know, the book I have, is just to go to my website, drdavidgeyer.com, uh, and Geyer is G-E-I-E-R, and there's you know, all sorts of stuff I do. I think, yeah, I think I do like, uh, I've written almost 2000 articles now over the seven years I've been on doing a website. I've got 400 plus videos on YouTube. So, uh, I love, yeah. And like 360 podcasts now. So, uh, clearly, uh, I like communicating injury information to the public. So yeah, definitely check me out and send me a message, ask questions. If you have any, I'd love to connect, especially with soccer fans. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, you guys you don't have to be a Liverpool fan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess I'm living proof of that. But uh, we're, we're excited to bring you back for part two, guys. Make sure you follow him. Um, my handle is the football physios and Berg, what's your handle? And my handle is at the soccer obsessed. All right. And also, please give us a five star review and we'll see you guys next time for part two. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 